0: Welcome back to the Disaster Tough Podcast. I'm your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. Several months ago, we were talking to Steve Johnson, who has been on the show multiple times. He's a true expert. You guys have heard his opinions. He teaches at dynamic populations with us. We see him at different events. Right now, I think he's in Thailand for some big conference. So he does lots of really cool stuff. Well, anyways, we were talking to him and we said, hey, We need to find copycats of you because we need other experts in the field who can really help push the agenda of best practice, doing really great things in the field. Do you know anybody else who is like you in in that kind of world? And he told me all about Barry Moss. Barry Moss is just just this genius, incredible thinker who really dives down into the analytics. He hates that I call him a genius so often, but it's true. And so when I met Barry... We had this we just had this like worlds collide moment where it's like oh my gosh he's doing so many great things in the uk we're trying to do good things here and we just meshed very quickly we we really liked him and i introduced him to the team everybody gave him a big thumbs up and so we brought him out to dynamic populations in st louis and literally on the fly because if you've uh heard walt lewis had to go back home we had some agenda stuff happening with hurricanes and i said, hey. Barry, would you mind doing a presentation literally on the fly? And he said, I got this. He went up there and he just did this knockout presentation all about risk assessments, how the UK looks at it, working from the hospital perspective, because he works with a lot of hospitals and emergency management. He also has a military background. The guy has just figured it out. And so at the end of that presentation, Uh, this very rare moment where myself and my entire senior staff were all taking notes on what he was saying. And that is a huge nod to him and uh, the work that he's put into trying to do things right. And the fact that he did it on the fly told us that he really knew his stuff. And so I've asked Barry to come onto the podcast to share some of those same thoughts and to talk to me about risk assessments so that you, the listener, can learn more about the UK's perspective, compare that to your own and really take your own emergency management program to the next level. So with that very long introduction, lots of good things about Barry. Barry, welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast.
1: Good afternoon, John.
0: How are you? (laughs) Oh, I love that British accent. It makes me feel so (laughs) special inside. Uh, All right. So, Barry, uh, first things first, before we get into how awesome you are, uh, I found out about how awesome your house was it was built in like three thousand BC. Can you tell us about your house real quick and that wall behind you? <laughs> so,
1: so no, it was me that was made in three thousand BC. I think I'm <laughs> that old, really. Uh, but no. oh. So, so, so this is this is a wall in my house. Welcome everybody to my house. The wall. That is a door and a wall. So that is a chalk wall um, built in the center of the house in about seventeen. 17- 50, maybe a little bit earlier wow uh, 1750 now what's what happened after 1750 let me just think about that for a
0: second we put england back in its place that's what we did oh did
1: you well there you go i knew there was something important that yeah. happened but i just couldn't quite remember so yeah uh, my house um a little village in norfolk in the real norfolk not your norfolk and um i've lived here for about 16 years but uh, this place has been around considerably longer um, it's it's this this chalk lump stuff sits in the middle of the of the wall normally, but we stripped off the coating and lime washed it. But it's um, the rest of the house is built of the same thing. But if you went and looked at the front of the house, you'd see flint fronted, um, and it's it's all sort of you know flints that have been chipped and then stuck into cement and put on from the house. Sort of you know. In fact, we did the roof uh, about a month and a half ago, and the guy took the old roof the, the coverings off. And then got to the um to the timbers and he went said uh these timbers are probably original on your roof Wow.
0: he looked
1: at them and they were all hand cut and they were angles and they were bent and all this sort of stuff we kept most of them but um yeah it's uh it's old but you know it's like me old but functional Keeps Old going. but
0: functional we'll take that. You know that yeah yeah cool it's you cool, know you, you you've mentioned that twice now about your age and yet i figured <laughs> that you you're probably one of the innovators just from like that random perspective, because Rodney Melsick, who's been on the podcast, like, is like that as well, talks about like how seasoned he is, and yet staying at the forefront of things. How have you been able to make sure that, not just having the experience, but making sure that you, you know, stay cutting, ed- cutting edge with your chops?
1: So, so it goes back a bit of time to probably when I was in the military. And, and every time people know when you're in the military, you get posted every three, two, three years to a new job. And you ask to do your specialization and you don't to do your job. You tend to find that you have to reinvent yourself every few years into a new thing. So I went from, I don't know, infantry work into some tanks, back into air defense with missiles, into CBRN, into training, into helicopters, into CBRN again, all sorts of stuff. So every few years, you reinvent yourself in a new thing. Cool. Same guys that you're working with and, and different places, but you reinvent yourself. So when I left well, the military in 2012, um, yeah, 2012, and I got into to, to this sort of work in my, my own sector, my own business and, and whatever. And, and I was looking at, this is what I know, and I, I was looking at guys and girls who'd left the military and got into a similar line of work. And a lot of them had been doing the same thing for literally decade or more after left the military and and they they would get they got to a point some of them where they were out of debt and they were still trying to hawk and sell what it was they did 10 15 years ago but it was out of debt and i looked at them and i thought i don't want to be like that so i took i took john my inspiration from madonna from the what from madonna
0: okay from Madonna.
1: the pop artist, yeah. <laughs> so Madonna reinvented herself every few years, didn't she? Into a new thing. So I thought, well, she can do it, why can't I? So basically, I went into left the military, did a load of counterterrorism work, got into a uh, nuclear um, power station emergency management, we did a lot of things with yeah. counterterrorism overseas at the same time, went into uh, school security moved as well into the health, our health service, area, the NHS, National Health Service. In case I'm going to mention that again, maybe. Uh, and ended up just just using the same skill set that I'd had since I was probably 18, 19 when I joined the military. They, they, you know, the military give you skills. They give you planning skills and command skills, and they give you knowledge and training about how to integrate information into planning and deal with the risks and all those things. They just don't call it that. Yeah. And so I, I took all those things and a bit of knowledge I picked up on the way and then got into these sectors and just used the same skill sets but changed the information, if you like. As I specifically oh. describe it, change the information, use your skills. And if your skills are generic, the information is the only thing that changes. And if you can understand that, and this is I important like that. Here, If you can associate the information with what you're trying to deliver, and as you always say, the mission is the important thing, then all you're doing is just taking information, using your skill sets, knowing what you're trying to achieve, and you're in. You've done it.
0: Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. The L3Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. Okay, let's jump back in. Yeah, so- I like that so much. So, you know, it, it draws on this thought process. I actually have four or five different conflicting thoughts but the mission for me like that you're talking about that skill set slash mission what i find fascinating is that a lot of people who come from military or especially like fire and police service into emergency management their mission set beforehand was life-saving life-sustaining on the tactical level and yet what i found is that once they move over to emergency management somehow they think their mission has changed to like yeah. doomsday preppy whatever write the plan that yeah. that. I don't yeah. know what happens and I, I've been trying to like figure it out like why do people quote unquote become stagnant is it because they give up is it because it's easy is it because they're tired is it because they're afraid is it because they're out of their element like I don't know I, I'm sure the answer is different for a lot of people but it does seem to happen to a majority of people like even me i've been doing this for 15 20 years now but i'm excited like i, I work on all these different projects and i want to be in it i don't yeah. know what happens to people why they they give that up any thoughts on that
1: yeah i think mean, it's individual um you know we're all individuals and nah, we we end up cheap. yeah well so we end, we end up that uh yeah. we end up with with you know, you it's lots of those things combined. I know, I know people who've who've moved out of the mental services or military and gone into a you know a job in emergency management, if you like, and they just go fine. I'll just take the money and I'll leave at the end of the day, and we don't worry about it. And if the if the boss says we you know we don't get to do that thing that you know they say you really got to do, boss. And the boss says no, I don't want to do that. And they go fair enough, boss. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. Whereas yeah. whereas I. I if, if my wife was studying that, she would say, That is not very, he will not do that, he will not give up, he will not. So, what did she say the other day? She said, You just won't do the wrong thing. And, yeah. and I have to be honest with you, she she's, well, she's known me quite a while now, and um, she dailed it in that, Yeah, I want if, if there's two choices and it's the wrong thing and the right thing, there is no two choices, there's just one right. choice. And that's Absolutely it. correct. And, and i tell you a weird thing because because when the first time I met you on an on online um, thing we were doing and you talked about the mission. so when I was how old I have been 18 and I joined the military and I went to training and they showed us a picture of the first leadership lesson. and it was oh. three overlapping circles and it was it was whether they'd say it was it was uh, mission it was team and it was individual. And I've heard it described as mission man self as well, but they yeah. were overlooking and all that. And it was a bit in the middle. It was a sweet spot. But they always said to us, if you're going to do anything, then I mean, bear in mind, this would have been what, 86. Um, so those of you quick on the maths, you know, all that. Um, and, and they said to us, basically, if nothing else happens, if nothing else matters, if you can't do anything else, the mission is it. And, and the team, and then yourself, because it goes in that order, That's are right. the subsequent things. And, I was, where was I? So I was probably coming towards the end of my career in the military. So I've been doing it about like, 24, 25 years at that point. And I sat down and said, having an appraisal with, with my boss. And uh, and he said, I thought people like you were all dead. I said, What do you mean? He went, People who literally believe in mission, man, self. And that's what he said to me. And I went, Well, isn't that what we all do? He went, No. He said, People don't do that. And lots of people don't do that anymore. Yeah. There's sort of people who did. But I mean, this is 12, 13 years ago. And, um, and he went, no, that's not the way it works these days. People, people think, people, and I don't know how to describe this because he always sounds patronizing and insulting when you talk to people about this. But if you're going to do this this sort of game, if you're going to be in this field, if you're going to going to try and be effective in it all, it's not a popularity contest. We are we are not here to be popular with our bosses, with our peers, with our whoever it is. We're here to achieve a thing that ultimately may save people's lives, that will save people a lot of money, will be a hassle, whatever, but it's not a popularity contest. And my, was at my team when I was doing the helicopter job? We had this really small team, they had this weird thing. Uh, and they were like, when it comes down to it, you don't, you're not very happy the first thing in the morning. I said, well, sometimes I'm a bit grumpy. And they went, yeah, but, you know, it's difficult to like you. And I went, I don't need you to like me. I just I just need you to understand what I'm trying to achieve and, and contribute. I'll be fair. I want to be happy, but I'll be fair. I've changed obviously because now I'm just a lovely person. But you
0: know, thinking about uh, like the mission, I've also been uh, interestingly enough. I wouldn't say accused, but people say to me, people don't talk like that anymore. They'll say that to me all the time. People don't talk like that anymore when I talk about the mission. And uh, there's this there's this real thing. I think I did a whole podcast on it about narcissism and gross narcissism. Instead of mission team person, everyone thinks that like Uh, first me. Mission, if convenient, definitely not team. And, uh, that's what I have found like has been like the perpetuating trend currently is like, if it works for me, fantastic. It has to work for me or nothing else. Uh, mission. Yeah. Like if it works for my schedule, absolutely all in, I can feel good about that. But team, like there's all those social media about like making fun of businesses who, uh, say like, Hey, we're a family. Right, There's all those jokes about that. And yet at the same time, as a small business owner, I don't sleep. I think about the people who have chosen to work for me, all the risks that they've taken on their lives. I pay them first before I pay myself. And while, yes, my immediate family is like my real family, I deeply care about these people. Mm -hmm. And I only want to work with people who care about the mission. And I'm Mm -hmm. very lucky to have a close group of friends, and you're now included on that who do care about the mission and want to do it the right way because you're right. Like anybody who's in my mind who considers the right way versus the wrong way to do something for convenience is not the crowd that I hang out with. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the only, the only thing I might push back a little bit on what you say is that, um, we have to learn to be agreeable and likable in order to get convince enough people to get the job done. Mm -hmm. If nobody likes you or nobody wants to work with you, then you're not gonna be able to move the needle. So you gotta figure out when you can yell at the boss and when you need to just say, hey, that's a good idea. And for those who are listening or trying to figure that out who don't know which battles to fight, the my meter goes like this. Uh, is it going to impact life, property, or continuity of operations? Yes, I have to put my foot down. If it's an opinion based off of like, how, where are you going to eat lunch? Nobody cares. Don't fight that. And so if it's impacting lives, got to put your foot down. If it's if it's just about opinion about, you know, how the document's formatted, whatever, nobody cares. So mm-hmm. that's where you can kind of choose to where you fight your battles. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking about it.
1: No, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, you can be popular or fair, but you can't be both. Because yeah. they don't sit Ooh, like together, but there's no point in being fair and rude because you, the people won't work for you. Then you need to be fair because if you're fair, people want to work for you. If you're, if you're if you're if you know, I know people who are fair but but quite harsh, and they don't achieve as much as the person who is fair and you know issues out a bit of a telling off with a smile on their face but a serious intent, and you, you can get things done. But then you can also come down to the point of when's it when's it time to not be light and say please because sometimes there's and some of your audience who are emergency responders will will automatically default to that understanding and go sometimes I'm not saying please because we're just going to go and do this thing and it's dangerous sure. we all accept it because we're into it and it's cool and I was the same when I was in the military you, you do that but if you can say please then why don't you because it doesn't hurt it's just a word and it might elicit a brilliant effect Um so yeah I know I, I agree with you I think I also think that when it comes down to, to choices that people make, I I do subscribe to the theory that some people make them in a certain order according to their personal priorities, should we say? See how subtle that British that was. Anyway, oh uh, you yeah, like doing yeah.
0: these mic drop moments? We're gonna have to like take all these quotes <laughs> and like just make them like like blaster or um, social media. Oh. With them, but.
1: So yeah. so some people do that, and and that's that's fine, but. I tell you what's weird. He's coming over to do Die Pop in 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 St. Louis, and seeing how the audience you had there, how keen they were, how how fresh they were, how interested, how dynamic they were, and then coming back home over here again. And it, I suppose it's a bit like the entire Britishness that that we'd all appreciate is that you know we're quite we could be quite dour, we could be quite cynical we could be quite but in our emergency management field we've got a lot of people who are who aren't excited by it anymore and it was a nice yeah. i said to you at the time know I, when i came over there i was like i see it's really nice to be with some people who are really interested and, and yeah and i don't get that over here i really don't i get competency and i get experience and i who get some of those people you're talking about as well but but sometimes it's just not very exciting anymore. And, you know, when you get to a certain point in your career, you need a bit of excitement. You need to, to sure. you know, get Keep going. A bit. Yeah, a yeah.
0: Burnout's yeah, also real. I mean, but at, at the same time, you might be, you, your, your vision, I think UK and the US are much much more alike than you seem. Mm. The diepop is interesting because, one, it's a very expensive. We know it's expensive, but we wanted to pull it all the stops. And so it charges people a lot. But it forces people to really advocate for themselves to their boss of why this is important or to do the work to get the UASI grant because you can go with the UASI grant or to find a way to come. We've had people said, hey, I can't afford to come, but I really want to come, and they made their pitch, and we were able to find them a scholarship. Like, There's all these different ways. But basically, by putting that value there, the price value, and now some people are going to really push back about like, what if people can't afford it. I just gave you three or four different ways to be able to afford it. Grants, you literally just have to do the work. It forces it. So when everybody comes, they really want to come. They want to see yeah. it. They they have invested into it their their time, their money, their resources. Being away from their family, the whole deal, all that stuff. So by the time they come in the room, we've without without um, too much manipulation, I you could say, is all the all the recipes already there. It's it they're already cooking. Um, that well, being said. Sorry. The class is very small and so, we have the so uh, I'm, I'm talking a while here but 10 years ago more than 10 years ago the average age of the emergency manager in the u.s was 45 years old and i took a picture at a conference where um i took this it's actually really messed up i took a picture of a conference where everybody's walking out of the hotel after the conference all khaki shorts huge yes. dudes super old white tennis shoes like 50 guys all like that it was like there wasn't but you fast forward now and the average age is now like 33 it's becoming younger yeah and so when you have an when you have a field based off of a lot of retirees some people just care about a check and um, some people are really passionate and yeah. i think we need to figure out how to as a field not get people exhausted so that whether they're retiring or brand new that they do have that excitement in their life and
1: I'll and I'll tell you another thing about it is that the younger people coming through with, you know, degrees and masters and things like that, which are, you know, eminently more valuable. I for me it was entirely learning the job. Right. Um but people coming through with that, and there's a couple I work with quite regularly, and and talented, yes, knowledgeable, brilliant, the one weakness experience. And unfortunately you don't get that in a book, do you? And 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 to be honest, I mean I I I'm not particularly academically, you know, certified as it were, um, but you can read voraciously, you can endeavor to understand. And and if you take that, and I suppose this is important, but we'll actually circle right back to the beginning when you started me saying we'd talk about risk because we're getting on a bit in time here right. anyway. Um, but when you're looking at risk of things, which ultimately for me is everything. If you can't understand your problem risk, then you're not going to come up with an effective solution. And so I often find when I'm dealing with people who've got uh the The academic basis for the job, when we stand there and we say okay this this stadium and we need to evacuate and we need to deal what we did to so with a with a chemical that had been' had been spread around Um, uh, that was an exercise by the way folks um mm-hmm. then we we are not then necessarily some people weren't focusing on what are the public going to do here. And yet, when you sort of apply experience to things and some reading and some exercising and some real deals, and then you realize that actually, whatever it is we want to do as emergency managers or responders is lovely, but ultimately, it might not even work because all those people who were affected, they're not going to do what they were told. They're not going to do what you want them to do. They're going to do whatever they want to do, but whatever they think is best. Um, and, you know, if you... If you I would, <laughs> My friend Louise, who who, who we're trying, I'm trying to convince to come on one of your lovely podcasts. But but she talks about about how the public know things and are not as dumb as a lot of people like to think they're going to be. And and if we leverage that by understanding risk, by articulating risk to people, because people get it, they they get the fact that this is this is going to be a problem they'll then sort some of their own solutions out if we can push them in the right direction to the solutions that we'd like them to do because it helps us then we're just leveraging what they do by by helping them to understand what it is we do but we can't do any of that unless we've well, done a decent understanding of the risk and and that's where it comes down to for me because when i was talking at the DiPop, i was talking about um the uk and its current um a problem with the thing called, and check this out, listeners, reinforced autoclave aerated concrete rack, RAAC. Look it up, UK rack, and it will tell you all about the schools that have got this in. And it's a crumbling concrete that's been around since the 60s and 70s and 80s, and it and a 30-year shelf life, and planning way past that. And there are hospitals made out of it. And True. there are there are people literally in hospital beds underneath these planks that are younger than my house. But less stable, and and what they're doing, and this is everywhere, is that we are we are standing in front of the people in the buildings, and when and lot, and this happens not just with rack, but lots of different things, and we are accepting the risk for those people. Yeah. We are we are turning around and we're going. Let's get some surveyors in. Let's look at what this means. You go to you. Know, maybe some of your, your your listeners may have heard of Grenfell, the big tower block in London that went up like a big candle. With a mm. cladding on the outside, if you, haven't, if you haven't heard of that, look it up. But but we let people stay in structures when we know there's a problem. When we know how serious it is, we might not have the absolute detail, which is the excuse we use to not do anything because we haven't investigated properly and done three years worth. Mm. So for three years, you can sit in that building while we think there's a problem until we confirm it. For yeah. me, that just goes that we we how can you do that? And then and then the classic is we don't tell them. And so you, John, could be sat in this hospital, in this school, in this tower block, and nobody has said to you, John, did you know that you are living in, you're in a building with a huge risk? Are you prepared to accept that? Because we've accepted it on your behalf. Yeah. And, and, and therefore you're, you're in blissful ignorance of a problem that you assume everybody's taking care of for you because they wouldn't let us in a building if there was a problem, wouldn't they?
0: Well, that's, um, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? That, that selfish mentality of like, well, I don't live in that building uh Surfside building collapse. They Me? knew about the problem. Yeah, two dams in Michigan that gave way. They were told 20 years prior that there was a problem. You Me? can trace back like almost every single like major like catastrophic human accident, quote unquote, to Me? somebody saying this is a problem, and people are like, "Well," eh, and nobody knowing about it in the building. Yeah, um in the U.S., several states I found out through. A buddy of mine who's no, uh, who runs his own podcast, tells us how to make it better, George Siegel, found out, um, he does like all this stuff on homes, that in most states, you don't have to tell somebody if the home is flooded when you go sell that home. Right. Uh, I wouldn't buy want to buy a home if it's flooded before. There's so many problems. You can't buy a car technically. There's lots of people who do it illegally in the U.S. But if a car has flooded from like a natural disaster, you can't resell that car. But you can buy a house that's been flooded and you don't have to tell people. Yeah. Right. There's a whole lot of, um, stupid out there that we accept as normal. The problem is like, as you who identifies risk and deals with risk, how do you convince the stakeholder that it's a big enough problem for them to do something about it?
1: Yeah. Yeah that that is a distinct problem because you can try the whole the whole line of if you don't tell people or you' let this happen you'll go to jail and people sort of they, they can't associate that with reality that that threat of that so in some ways it's worthwhile mentioning but in other ways it's pretty pointless um you can end up with um trying to explain to the 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 not the risk holder but the people who are subject to the risk and they can then try an influencing way of it getting people to understand it all. Um, there was a, we had a thing in London a few weeks ago where um, there was a, a, an unfortunate young man who was shot by the police in a car. He was in the wrong car at the wrong time and, and they, they thought he they had the weapon. Um, and, the, and the officer in, who shot him is now in charge of murder, at which point reportedly 300 armed police officers, and we don't have that many in the UK, Uh, all handed in what's called their firearms tickets, their authorization to carry weapons. They said, we're not carrying them anymore because the risk to us is too great to do a thing. Now, when when you get to that point where you've not only got a risk to somebody's life who's doing their job because somebody might have a weapon, you've not only got a risk to their liberty because they did something that perhaps in the heat of the moment they should or shouldn't have done, and then you've got the whole public opinion piece for them. You can see why people are not keen on even investigating risk and understanding. I just want to avoid it because we, we are set up in societies to allocate blame. It's what we do. And if you're in our game where you are actually literally saying that's a problem, you've got to do something about it. And, and you're trying then to convince people that there is a way out of it or there's going to be blame, then people would rather not know about it to avoid the risk of the blame than actually solve the problem or make a decision go back to the pandemic how many decisions were there in your country there was lots of mine where people did not make decisions about closing airports letting people go on their skiing holidays in march 2020 uh cancelling christmas stopping people they just wouldn't make those decisions because there was no evidence that said they should do that they didn't want to be unpopular go back to that popularity thing again but the risk the risk of pandemics Globally, has been known for well hundreds of years and maybe more. But we, we, where was that risk management to stop the problem? Yeah, I mean, you could have all sorts of arguments about the rationality and the. the oh idea my gosh! I the mean, even
0: since you're talking about since so, as as something gets, becomes political, and all disasters be, are political, to be honest. But okay. once it becomes hyper political, game over. I mean, we had a prominent politician over here go into Chinatown, San Francisco, in March of 2020, saying. If you're saying the coronavirus uh, you know comes over from you know uh China, then you're a racist. Sorry. And then months later criticize the president for not closing down all the ports fast enough. Yeah. And so it's like yeah. like the whole thing is just a crapshoot, like once once something like like that's like happens. Uh COVID nineteen response was doomed from the start because of politicians. Yep. yep. Um you're talking about trusting the public. I called that out on an episode, and I think it's worth calling it out again. Um, In Hawaii, they didn't press the button for the sirens because they were afraid that it would be associated with tsunami. They didn't trust people to go outside and be like, oh, the water's still there, but there's a raging wildfire 10 feet from my house. Maybe they're talking to me about the wildfire. Now, at the same time, when we do conflicting messages and uh they're complicated and we're using our own vernacular, that's when we confuse the public. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly important for us to find common language. Goes back to the whole ICS thing. ICS is not common language for the public, by the way. So like for example, when anybody in operations calls themselves an operator, I'm like, you you know you're not a black ops, right? You're not you're not like killing the back end. Um but like all that stuff is it just goes back down to when you're (laughs) identifying risk Risk yeah. to your own career is a great way to start as an emergency manager. Risk to the public is another great way to start as a, as an emergency manager. And I'm going to do the last call out because we're running out of time here is stop using your gut. You've got to back up anything what you're saying with data or you're just embarrassing at this point. There's enough sources out there to say, hey, there's evidence of why I'm saying this. It's not just like because I think all things are bad are going to happen. England. Because eventually somebody's gonna lay blame, blame and it's usually back to us if we don't do our job. Great yep. to have some okay, documentation right. to back up what you're what you were saying. So
1: Yep. Yeah, and I've done I've done such a lot of this over the years where where it actually, as you say, that evidence comes in many forms, doesn't it? It doesn't come necessarily just in scientific research or figuring yeah. out that concrete will crumble or that virus will spread. It comes in the fact that people with qualifications and experience can walk into a stadium, I've done a whole bunch of those, where you walk in there and you, and you can simply stand back and go, Okay, we know there's a threat, and we know it's either a bomb, a knife, a gun, a vehicle, whatever it's going to be, and and that's the place. And I can see the security, and I know where the people are. And if I was the bad guy, which is where personally I always start, uh, yeah. which you know, slightly fun but a bit weird, it is super and fun. then w- <laughs> and then walk up to the location and go, how would I do that? And this is my motivation. We're- it's a bit like acting. What's my what's my motivation for the role? What am I trying to achieve? What's my mission as a bad guy? If I know what my mission is and I know what I've got to do it with, so, you know, intent, opportunity, and and, and uh, capability, if I've got those three things and I know what, what it is I want to achieve with all that, pretty much there's your evidence of, of how to do that. And to, yes. for people to say that won't happen, we're talking about encountering human nature, and that that is it.
0: Just the other day, uh, uh, I think you shared it, some other people shared it with me. Politicians and stadiums are are worried about drone attacks in stadiums right now. Yeah. If only there was an organization out there who has been specifically targeted. I mean, man, who would that could I don't do? I, I, I can't
1: think. Oh, can't my God. That, So yeah.
0: weird to think how unique. Yeah. Um, somebody else to, go to that with separate. Dipop and using drones and chemical weapons and the whole deal. That's not based off of some Hollywood thing, by the way, mm-hmm. and for everybody who's listening for Barry, what we're talking about is using after action reports mm-hmm. and learning how the bad guy, what the steps they took You can, in the US, uh, DHS and FEMA or DHS and the FBI both have the steps to terrorism, the steps that they take in their process and learning how they act. There's lots of different data there. Mary, we're out of time. If you're going to give some advice for somebody who's looking into doing like a real risk assessment, how, where would you tell them to start besides thinking about the bad guy from the data perspective or from the stakeholder perspective? Where would you start in understanding the risk for a community or for uh, a campus?
1: I would do a hybrid of that. I would start with the data and how it supports the bad guy's intent. Because. Love that. That's where the problem is. And if you don't know, that's a problem. Everything you do, this is a problem you get with, with many emergency response plans and capabilities that are developed. We always develop them to do what we want to do in the way we want to do it or what we would expect to happen. Yeah. And actually, every single plan or response you put in place has to be started from hard data, bad guys' perspective, dealing with that, and then flip it when you've managed to get control of the situation to now what we want to do. So it's a hybrid. It's a perspective. It's a don't think that you're going to get it right because you do what you want to do because you won't because the bad guy and the, the members of the public are all going to vote in this. So there
0: you go. That's what I do. The biggest, I love that, and the biggest call out I'm going to give to everybody who's thinking about doing that is when you're going through this, you are a prudent person. The bad guy is not. They're insane. They're mm-hmm. evil. They're manipulated. They're all these kind of things. And so the more you can use that hybrid approach of data, after actions, understanding the, the complexities, like getting eyes on things, qualitative and quantitative, smashing that all together. That's how you become an expert of actually getting out there. Barry, thank you so much for coming out of the podcast and sharing your perspective. we got to get to come back. Um, it's always a pleasure to hear from you and to learn more about your house I was built before the United States. John,
1: an absolute pleasure and a dream, sir.
0: Oh, my goodness. Uh, Compliments from a British person always feels good. Hey, so if you got something out of this podcast, which you should have, you got to give us that five-star rating and subscribe. Uh, Big news, if you check out the ReadinessLab.com website, we just launched something that's going to help our podcast and the other podcasts on our network stay alive, basically. Um, We've launched our own paid subscriptions. It comes with a ton of stuff from audio uh, tabletop exercises that come out every month to discounts on our merchandise to all this really cool stuff newsletters and webinars and updates Uh, we're even thinking about doing some digital downloads for people as well or you could just give us a small donation to help us keep the lights on and that kind of stuff so if you're willing please check out the readinesslab.com for the new subscriptions that have just launched and we will see you for the next one thanks peace